You don't just get that. Come on. talk about a Catholic quest for the Holy Grail, we have to have Holy Grail music. Now, live from downtown Burbank, California, <laughs> the one and only Sir Charles Coulot. Well. You don't get an introduction like that when brother puts you on. It just goes, uh, Charles, are you there? <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. But, you know, this is a lot to face after the Vanity Fair after party. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know what you, what, what you want me to do now. Man, of course, I wasn't there, but still. Let me uh, begin by saying that you changed my life again on Saturday, you bastard. No. You bastard. <laughs> I won't be blamed. No, <laughs> you're going to be blamed. Um, your book. So I finished the Holy Grail last night, cover to cover. I even read the appendix. Uh, ah. Yes, and I had to tell you that uh, I was not prepared for the last five chapters. <laughs> and I had never thought, I had never given thought to these sorts of things. And I really going like, this, this is really interesting. It was stimulating because I hadn't thought about it like that. So. Uh, kudos again on a great book that I hope makes you, uh, I hope earns you enough so that you can go to many more Vanity Fair after parties <laughs> in respectable clothing, Charles. Well, in, in, indeed, it's, it's uh, you know, that uh, whenever, whenever I wear a black tie at a Hollywood event, I'm usually the only one there with a detachable wing collar, but that's okay. I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, the um, you and brothers reconquest episode covering Billy Graham. You know, I called brother immediately after I listened to it on Saturday, and I congratulated him. I, I gave him condolences that he had to, you know, to, to tolerate you for forty-five minutes. But then I congratulated. Well, <laughs> I'm kidding. There's that. We're both still dealing with the Reverend Graham's death. I, and I, when I told brother, I said, you know. There's a uh, there's a responsible way and a charitable way to cover that, and there's an irresponsible way. And I've seen a lot of people cover it horribly, horribly, irresponsibly. And uh, you and Charles did the faithful a good service by covering it with uh, charity and with uh, thoughtfulness. So I thought that the way that you that you two covered the uh, the subject was um, was just really good. And I, I'm encouraging people to listen. To episode number 117, but there's something in there that has something to do with the grail that you brought up. And I don't know if you wrote about this in the Puritan Empire, um, uh, one of your other books, but you started talking about how we are all not good citizens of the empire. We're not good Romans because no. we don't evangelize and try and convert the Billy Grahams of the world. So I want to That's start correct. with that. I thought I just thought that was just brilliant. I'd go like, I never would have thought of that. Would you just talk about that for a minute, if you would? Well, yeah. Um, I I don't know that. Well, I think I did touch on the theme, the sense of the United States. But if you think back for a minute to uh, our ancestors in the Roman Empire, from the time of Christ, uh, well, not exactly, from the time Nero outlawed us under uh, Pope St. Peter. Okay. Uh, from that time until the Edict of Milan, 
in 312, uh, I guess. Uh, I'm really bad with dates, so there it is. Uh, during that time, we were illegal. The faith was illegal. Right, right. And when we were brought up before the judges, they had that wonderful pithy phrase, it is not legal for you to exist. Well, that was the backdrop against which we began our work of conversion. And as I pointed out, in, uh, when the faith came to Rome, the two classes that immediately went for it were the old nobility who had been sort of pushed aside by later events and the slaves. In other words, the two, the most exclusive and the most downtrodden, <laughs> were the folks that went for the faith initially. And all, and all for obvious reasons, if you think about it, because for the slaves, it gave meaning to their lives. You know, you're not just a piece of garbage, you're a real human being, you matter, God loves you, etc. Mm-hmm. And for the old nobility, uh, you know, your, your uh, attempt to hold the line, to keep the old Roman virtues while everything went to hell around you, you were right. <laughs> you know, if you, your watch was not in vain. It's just it wasn't for the right reason. Right. But the okay. watch itself was not wrong. So with those two things going, those are the two classes that they captured. All right. They go on, they go on. More and more people become Catholic across the empire, despite it being illegal. And then Constantine comes along. He legalizes it. Now, for them, that was, in a sense, the moral equivalent of our getting JFK in the White House. <laughs> Think about it. Not, not that we went through anything like the persecution our ancestors went through, it makes our story all the more pathetic. But nevertheless, <laughs> for, for us... Well, and, and the, only, the, the only Catholic in recent memory that, uh, or maybe even ever, that was President of the United States basically renounced his faith before he took the oath of office. Well, there's a certain price to pay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pay to play, they say. He paid. Well, at any rate, uh, imagine that at the moment we were legalized, our ancestors have said, well, that's it. We have our place at the table now, kids. We don't have to do any more That's work. it. We're done. Yep. We, we got what we came for. Well, they would have been traitors to the empire. That's what they would have been. They would have been bad Romans. They would have been um, the worst kind of Roman. Instead, they continued to work until within... Uh, a few decades, it was feasible for the Emperor Theodosius the Great to declare Catholicism the state religion of the empire and to make baptism entry into Roman citizenship. Wow, that's just... Now, folks, you have to think about what Charles just said here. You even made this point in, in episode 117 that, you know, people love to compare the United States to the Roman Empire, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire. We're here, we're going to fall there. Well, no Catholic should be able to say that, or few, <laughs> because uh, we're, we are utterly disgraceful when it comes to the patriotic duties that we should have discharged compared to the patriotic duty that the Roman Catholic uh, 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 performed when uh, he or she became a real, live, living martyr, if need be, but evangelist for the faith. I mean, yep. 
Your, your, your point was that they were good citizens of Rome that settled England, that brought the faith to the pagan hordes in the Nordic lands, that brought the faith to the Franks, that brought the faith to the, uh, to the Spaniards and, the, and what would ultimately become the Portuguese. And then, of course, yeah. it, it spread west. It went almost to China. It went all through the east, area, Egypt. And the, and the thing was, those were not just good Catholics. They were good Romans. They loved their country. They loved their faith. We don't. <laughs> Why don't you tell me what you really think, Charles? Well, no, I, I, I believe in pulling my punches, as you know. Uh, that's what I told him last night. You know, uh, it was this lousy Dom Perignon. Where's the, where's the verb Pico? What are you doing? No. Uh, <laughs> seriously. The, uh, just, just the audience doesn't, doesn't get to him said, I really wasn't there, just so you know, despite the photographs. Anyway. <laughs> I did not you should, have libation relations with that bottle. <laughs> you should not be reading the Inquirer anyway, all right? So you see my picture of the Inquirer, it says more about you than it does about me. But as I was saying, no, seriously, though, uh, the thing is that the, the truth of the matter is that we Americans, we Catholic Americans, I should say, have failed our country. You know, uh, and I'll, I'll regionalize it. Uh, you can wave the stars and bars all you like, but you're no son of the South if you don't want to evangelize your neighbors. You can uh, go on and on about the need for civil rights and the, the improvement of the blacks' position in, uh, in society, but you hate the blacks if you're not about evangelizing them. If you don't want to evangelize people, you don't love them. Now, this is where the argument gets, uh, this is where most people go like, all right, all right. Uh, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> Actually, well, yeah, because I live in, in California where everyone is open to the faith. Tell me more. <laughs> Charles Coulomb, author of A Catholic Quest for the Holy Grail on the uh, Dude Maker Hotline with us. Book is on sale today in the Founders Trading Post, signed by Charles. Get a copy, autograph while you can. Now, there's a part of the Holy Grail story, though, that Charles tells. And I, I got to tell you, when I say you you, uh, you changed my life and I'm going to blame you for it. <laughs> you, yeah. um, this whole Roman argument here that you made with brother just got me to thinking, like, you know, Mike, Stop apologizing for evangelizing. Just do it. You know, you, you either have ataraxia or you don't, and it's a disease. And I think I contracted it this weekend. So, <laughs> well, I, I, gosh, so that, that's that's two things. One, you're you're still annoyed because you didn't get invited to the after party. Are we still on that? Can we leave that alone? Yeah. No, seriously. Um, no, well, tell me. I'm, 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 I'm all ears, which is very uncomfortable in a chair like this. <laughs> well, now in the book, the Holy Grail. Okay, so we get this. Uh, I, I got to like the fifth chapter, and I went, "That's it, that's it." <laughs> I said, "Wait a minute, I'm only eighty pages in." Um, the lesson that is presented in this book is one that is going to be very surprising to people. I think that it is, uh, regardless of what, what you think about the Holy Grail story or not, I think it's worthy reading. 
because of the context that Sir Charles places the grail in. And uh, this is just brilliant. I really think it is. The grail is the instrument, one of the instruments, that actually held the precious blood of the Redeemer of the human race. That Now, from, from the day that he does the first, that our Lord does the first transubstantiation on Holy Thursday, that cup was venerated by all the faithful. And they never questioned, they never questioned whether or not that blood was in that cup because that's why they Your point was, I think, I hope I got it, was that the early Christians never questioned transubstantiation, even though they didn't have the name yet. They no. knew that he changed the water that was in the cup into his blood. Am I, is that right? That's absolutely correct. Now, that's the point about the story about the Holy Grail that I don't think that I've ever heard. I certainly haven't read it. And uh, that, and that's what the latter chapters are about. What was it that they were crusading to get? And why would they have done it? And that's just, that makes the book uh, a theological work as well as a fun one, a historical one, because Charles is a great historical and fun writer. And uh, I got to tell you, <laughs> Where do you come up with all these dates and these events? I'm reading you. You write about these guys. I'm like, uh, am I supposed to know who that was? <laughs> well, that's why God made Google. <laughs> I mean, I know. I, I honestly, part of the that's why when I when I write for stuff online now, I just hotlink everything. Right. Because uh, the fact of the matter is, there's so much information available today. Yes. That. Uh, I mean, when, when I when I first wrote uh Empire years and years ago, I put in italics every name, and I said this in the foreword that you should look up an encyclopedia because these are you know these are basic people that you should know about. Right. And frankly, the stuff that I want to show you are elements of them you might have seen before, and I'm going to leave it to you to figure out who these people are. Um. Now I just hotlink it if it if it appears online, and I leave it to you to uh, you know to go to Wikipedia, source of all truth, to start your research. <laughs> uh, that's its official name is Wikipedia, source of all truth. It's, it's all one word. But uh, no, I mean the, the 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 sad truth of the matter is that a lot of these characters are people you should know. Um, yes, were our educational system not so awful? Um, the people did know, you know, um, they may not have known them in their true light, but they knew they were, um, another, ask kid today. Hmm? Yeah, another Sorry. point that Charles makes, uh, Charles Coulomb, author of a Catholic quest for the Holy Grail. Again, books on sale today, take five bucks off and that's enough to buy Charles a really cheap scotch when you see him at the St. Benedict Center Conference next, next year. So. I'm giving that's you your sure. first round, okay? When you, <laughs> when you, when you it's going to be really, it'll be Johnny Walker red, not black. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be pinch, but no, I'm kidding. Another one of the points that uh, is made in the latter stage uh, ta chapters of the book is that the the men that uh, that quested for the grand. Now, first of all, and we're gonna we're gonna run out of time here today, but maybe we can do a little extension. Um, you conclude that 
even though you say the Arthurian legend, you conclude that as a historian that there was a King Arthur. His name may not have been Arthur, but there was someone who was the King of Camelot, right? Yeah, that's my uh, my suspicion and uh, my, the best of my knowledge, my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's another character that pops up in the Grail chapters, and he is Percival. Yeah. Okay. Now, it, Percival is the subject of another legend, right? Right. He he is actually the first focus of the Grail stories. Okay. So you now you think that if if I got if if I remember correctly, you think that Percival was based on Charlemagne? No. No. Okay, I got it uh, wrong. Uh, no, Percival. Um... I don't know who he was based on, and uh, he may not have existed. Um, he might have done, but his story and authors were originally quite separate. Okay. The Grail stories, as we know them, don't start getting written until about 11... I'm bad with dates, even when I've written them down elsewhere. <laughs> we'll say about 1180, 1170, something like that. And they stopped writing the core of the legend. What happened was a fellow called Chrétien de Troyes wrote the story of the Holy Grail. And everybody, he didn't finish it. So a whole bunch of other people loved it and finished it for him in different ways. <laughs> uh, uh, and that continued to about 1250 or so. And that's when most of the uh, different variations of the Grail story were composed. Now, Here's the fun thing. Uh, they were grafted on by Kirkian to the, the already existing Arthurian story. Uh, whether uh, Percival already existed and was it was already a, a character, I'm not quite clear on. But uh, if it was, if it, if it was already a character in the Arthurian stories by that time, he may well have existed in some form or other. But, they, but the irony about the Grail stories as opposed to the, the, the relic of the cup itself, which, as I pointed out, were not really related, is that the Grail stories are not very good history. But what they are is reflective of Eucharistic theology yes. and of the whole area of Eucharistic miracles. See, these stories were written answer a very definite need. Four different things are going on at the same time. Okay. by who their audience is. Their audience are noblemen, knights. Now, on the one hand, the Crusades were failing due to lack of uh, European support. Civil wars were breaking out in, in, around Western Europe. Support and, and uh, shall we say, national feuds were going on. Okay. And support for the great international crusade was uh, falling, and so the crusade was failing. Uh, this led people of that sort to question whether chivalry really was a valid form of, of, of lay spirituality uh, connected, to, connected to warfare that would, uh, would help to save your soul. So that's the second issue. Third issue was what I like to call the Eucharistic Revolution, in the sense that this was the era when people were culminating in 1215 when it was defined 
when people are beginning to realize that the best way to describe what happens at the Mass is transubstantiation, that that's the best possible language to describe it. And this, uh, this was a gradual process, and it took place during uh, the time that the stories were first being composed. And then, lastly but not least, you also have the rise at the same time in uh, the popularity of Corpus Christi, which itself owed its origin to the revelations given to none in the age. All this stuff was happening at the same time. So the gradual procession of the stories, which is one of the few elements that doesn't ever change, there's always a gradual procession. Okay. It's very closely connected to the rise of the Corpus Christi procession. Now, people that, and, and uh, if you're not catching all this, um, <laughs> Basically, then, the, the Holy Grail, uh, and this is another part about, about uh, Charles's book that will, uh, I think, just club you over the head and is beneficial to everyone to read. And that's this. Those men and those women, they actually believed in the real presence. They actually believed in real miracles. So thus, it wasn't that difficult for men and women that told, uh, and, and little boys and little girls that heard Holy Grail stories of crusading knights and, you know, knights in shining armor and all this stuff, and the King Arthur legends, you know, in Camelot, and how wonderful it was and how they behaved and all that. And, uh, you know, the magic, uh, you know, the beasts that they would slay with the assistance of Merlin or whatever. They didn't have a problem believing in this because these people actually had the faith and they actually believed that miracles occurred, right? And they did. And they, and did. they did. Now, and that, the great irony of the of the Grail stories mm -hmm. is that the historical element in them is is nil. The miraculous element, however, closely corresponds to the Eucharistic and other kinds of miracles that not only were happening then, but happened today. Now, I'm sure you saw this story. Uh, there has been another Eucharistic miracle, right? You saw it in Italy. Yes. 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 As a matter of fact, I did a whole little uh, movie bit on this that we, with, uh, we turned into a video, and I ended every little stanza of my argument with, but you don't believe in miracles. So there's another. So that and then in turn, think of it like this, folks. That sh uh, Shaborium that was found in at Santa Assunta uh, Church in, in in Italy, Santa Maria Assunta, uh, that was found, that Shaborium, Charles, was a holy grail, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was, and to be honest with you, and this is the great secret of the grail, uh, as you know, I, I deal with a great many miraculous relics, in the course of the book, and where you can find some of them in the gazetteer at the end. But, uh, and here's the big but, okay. uh, and it's great if you can go see them, but if you can't, well, if you can't, then every, uh, every perpetual adoration chapel is in fact a, uh, a chapel of the grail. But, what if there's no perpetual adoration in your area? Whenever you go to Mass, for the time that, uh, that the uh, precious blood sits in that chalice, 
and especially at the elevation, especially at the elevation, there's the grail. And it's, it's interesting, if you think about it, in the Arthurian stories, when the grail appears in Camelot, it comes and it goes. It comes in, everybody's in awe, a voice says, this is the Holy Grail, encourages them to go find it, blah, 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 and then out it goes again. It's very like its appearance at Mass. When the Pope, when the uh, Pope, well, him too, when the priest elevates the uh, elevates the chalice and the host, but when he elevates the chalice, there you see the Holy Grail, because what made the Grail the Grail was the presence of the precious blood. Was the blood the transubstantiation? I, I I tell you, it sounds so simple. Mrs. O'Connell in the other room is nodding her head up. It sounds so simple. But I got to tell you, Charles, that's not a point that is widely held, and I guarantee you that would that that will come as a surprise to uh, your average uh, uh, your your average uh, what four Sunday a year Catholic. Well, <laughs> Ash it, Wednesday, Easter, Christmas, and All Saints. <laughs> yeah, well, Christmas, Easter, weddings, and funerals. Right. The, uh, the, four, the four great Catholic. The four great Catholic uh, uh, days of obligation. <laughs> yeah. But it, 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 again, you know, I, I, I hate to sound like uh, Judy Garland, the Wizard of Oz, but uh, your heart's desire really is close to your home. And you're the thing. So that heart's sorry. Oh, I was going to say. So we uh, uh, there's just a there, there, there's a great lesson to be learned there. You know, just just think about this, Charles. And I got to go because we're out of time because you were so late. I'm kidding. It's a great half-hour interview. But just think about this, Charles. Your book is about events that happened to knuckle-dragging what we would call Neanderthal barbarians. These people <laughs> bathe and do all the things that, uh, that we think uh, that uh, you know we're so privileged to do today and this and that and the other. They did, they, but they had a connection to the real presence of Christ and to the effect, the physical effect of the real presence, the precious blood and then the precious body. Um, they had an attachment to it that technology simply cannot buy. And I think that's the point that I that, that really that I got out of the last uh, chapters of the Holy Grail that, you know, it is an appreciation for this element of the faith that is the it's the principal element of the faith either either you believe that the real presence are there or you don't and if you do yeah, yeah. then every sunday you've seen a holy grail yeah what, are, what if you don't then it's mumbo jumbo right so and when the thing, the thing is by their fruits you shall know them if people are inattentive to the blessed sacrament they don't bother to genuflect. Maybe give it give it a, a friendly nod as they pass by the, uh, the <laughs> friendly <temporary>. nod. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, hi, how you doing? Uh, they 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 act as though he's not there. Well, then, what are we to presume? But that they don't think he is. Uh, years ago, I remember a Protestant of my acquaintance said to me, "If I believe what you Catholics pretend you believe about that bread and wine, I would crawl on my face for it." <laughs> I believe that you Catholics pretend that you believe. 
Uh, unfortunately, that's actually true. <laughs> well, yeah. I, well, you know, again, um, and and the to to once to once more uh, to once more put things in perspective. Our ancestors in the empire were good Romans and converted the empire. We're not right, and they also uh, they also converted nearby empires. Yeah. Actually, Armenia converted first before the empire, so just so you know. But so did Ethiopia, in case anyone wants to pride themselves on being European. But the uh, uh, that was then. There's good Armenians and good Ethiopians as well. But uh, <laughs> beyond that, our ancestors, the time of uh, of the writing of the Grail, believed in the real presence in a way we know. And, and, so what do what do we believe in? Okay, what do we believe in? <laughs> the Academy Awards. The Academy Awards and Vanity Fair after parties. No, uh, that's what we believe in. There, there's another part, and I uh, pointed this out to my uh, my priest yesterday, and he kind of looked at me like, "Well, who doesn't know that, Mike?" And I went, "Oh, I didn't." There's a line in the traditional mass, the real mass, uh, that is said during the consecration of the precious blood. And you kind of you begin the the the, your, the story the story with this, and that is the priest holds the cup. He he says the uh, the the blessing, or the sacred words over the cup, re reliving the words that our that our Lord said. But he says, and we take uh, this cup. Now I never considered that either, and I bet most people haven't either. He meant that's one, and then you point out this is the oldest part of the mass. The consecration is the oldest part of it. He meant, and imagine Saint Peter saying a mass. He meant that cup that was on that table at the Sanatum, the uh, the last, as we call it, the Last Supper. That cup was used to say the first holy. Catholic masses. So anyone that doubts the authenticity, infallibility, and legitimacy of the Catholic mass as the mass, as our Lord intended it, well, there's your proof right there, right? And, and what's interesting about that is that the other rites of the Catholic Church, as opposed to Roman, and I'm talking about the Ambrosian rite in Milan, the Mozambique in Spain, the Byzantine rite, the Manite rite, etc., they don't, none of them say this cup. And that's because the Roman rite was specifically the rite of St. Peter himself. Now, the other apostles, of course, scattered to the four winds, and, you know, that's the other rites of the church are their gifts. But Peter gave us the Roman rite. And one of the other points we haven't touched on, but in terms of what would be the cup itself, I believe the best uh, evidence. It gives us the Santo Cariz in Valencia, Spain. And uh, Pope Benedict was the last one to use it? The last Pope to use it, yeah. last he, Pope uh, to use it, right. He said Mass with it, as did uh, St. John Paul II. And he, uh, now you can, if you can get to Valencia, Spain, you can actually, this uh, this cup is venerated on, what, Good Friday? Yeah, and, and it's also and you can venerate it. It's brought out, but you can see it and venerate it any time you like. If you go to the cathedral, if you go to the website of the Cathedral of Valencia, they have a section on it that's very informative. 
Well, uh, as, as to how it got to Spain, it's a long story. But suffice to say that it, it includes St. Lawrence, the famous Spanish deacon of the Pope in the 200s, who, uh, when he was being martyred, they burned him on a gridiron. And he was the one who said, you can turn me over now, this side is done. <laughs> Uh, so this tale is uh, detailed in the book, uh, A Catholic Quest for the Holy Grail by Charles A. Coulomb. Uh, Charles, I told you that we are going to have you at least once once per month. This will suffice as our uh, as our March. <laughs> yeah. As our March uh, visit. I, uh, uh, folks, get the book and listen to Charles and Brother Andre delve into the lack of patriotism of American Catholics. I, I just love the way that, you know, well, you Catholics are always accusing people of this and that and the other. Again, Charles and, and brother were very respectful of the Reverend Graham. You even said at one point during the interview, you know, brother, when I learned of his death, I was sad. sad yeah, with great sadness. You know, I, I wasn't going, yeah, he's in hell now. Yeah, I'll teach you. I, I was in sad, mortified at the thought that he might not have passed judgment because I, of uh, of the fact that 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 like you told a story about Bishop Sheen, the Bishop Sheen trying to convert him. No, no. <laughs> and that I had, uh, and I read somewhere that he at one point did consider becoming Catholic. Um, I'm sure talking to Catholics probably dissuaded him. <laughs> but, the, well, you know, he probably talked to some notable Catholics. Oh, you can find where you are. Because um, that's the kind of guff we give people. He talked to Cardinal Dolan and Dolan told him, oh, no, 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 you're far better off with your, you know, you don't want to come over here. <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we can't smack you around where you are. We'll smack our own around. huh? But, you know, the, the, uh, the thing that, uh, you know, when you were speaking to them, I felt sadness on two different levels. One was for him, and you know the possibility that um, he uh, he might not go to heaven. But there was another element of my grief, and it wasn't for him. It was for us. It was the same kind of grief I felt when Ronald Reagan died. Um, And I'm sure it's the same kind of grief I'll feel when McQueen dies. You know, simply because he'd always been there. And he was a big part of the world that I grew up in, which is, sure. you know, rapidly being transformed into a freak show beyond comprehension. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you grow up with these figures, and quite apart from any other regard you might have for them or, or might not, they were always there. You know? And... It's it's uh, as I as I told my brother I said the problem with these people passing is that it's like they're taking away the last of the adults you know <laughs> leaving <laughs> leaving it under under infantile supervision. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then the, there's the other part of the sadness of knowing that if we truly believe extra ecclesial nulla salus that there's very real possibility then uh, they're not going to be there to brighten up heaven. And that's a sobering thought. And we failed as American Catholics to evangelize and pray enough to our our Blessed Lady for the conversion of Ronald Reagan. I'm told by his most prominent biographer. I don't know if you know. uh, Oh, gosh. I got the book in the back. Uh, Craig Shirley. I'm told by Craig Shirley that, no, Mike, he did not convert. I can tell you that he did not on his deathbed, which saddened me. 
Um, well, you got to bear in mind that he'd had enough experience with the church through his alcoholic father. Right, right. Uh, knew about Catholics. <laughs> but again... Oh, no, I, I mean, I, I, I have to repeat this over and over and over. We, if our country, after 200 and some years, 240 years of freedom to preach the faith, this country is not Catholic. It is not the fault of the country. No, it isn't. We were just too wonderful for this country. They just didn't understand that. No. No, that's actually not what it was. We didn't care. We don't care. Present tense. Um, you know, you, you, you really think that the vast majority of Catholics really care if anyone around them, A, become Catholic, nope. or B, if their relatives stay in the church. Unfortunately, no. They don't. No. And again, <laughs> folks, you know, you know, get, uh, Brother Andre Maria has a little show called Reconquest. Perhaps you heard of it. Um, uh, he 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 needs to just call it conquest because <laughs> there's no yeah. re to it. <laughs> well, you know what's what's funny? I was in uh, in Washington D.C. the other day, um, and there's a story I don't mind telling. Um, there are a few I do mind telling. No, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, no. There's there's uh, there's a story I'm, I'm quite happy to tell because it's germane, and it also tells you something. Now. Uh, you know that the first Catholics in Maryland were English. And Southern Maryland in particular still has a very strong flavor of that kind of Catholicism. Okay. I know because I, I finally got down there and got to explore it in some detail, thanks to Ark and Dove Ventures, the travel agency that took me around. <laughs> but, oh, was that a plug? I'm sorry. But uh, <laughs> they, did, they did a great job, though, because they're Catholic, and they know what a Catholic needs to see. Uh, but when I was on my own in the city, I went to Georgetown's Visitation Convent. Now, I um, had never been there. It was founded in 1799, the first convent of women religious that we've ever had. I wanted to see it because I knew that King Charles X of France had given it this big painting. And I had called several times over the years to find out more about it. Nobody there seemed to know. I get there, and the thing is in the chapel, biggest life with a big explanation on one side of everything about it, including where it came from. So that was great. But they introduced me to the uh, archivist of the of the convent, who's a sister, and she in turn told me about an odd experience she had. And that was, um, you know, they've closed down a lot of their convents in different places. When they do that, they have to dig up the sisters and deposit them somewhere else. Okay. Well, she was in charge of exclamations. At uh, this one particular uh, convent, I think it was Catonsville, Maryland, and the uh, she had a group of uh, African doctoral students who were doing the work, uh, and they uh, they had a great fear of the dead, so it was a little bit difficult. But at any rate, uh, you know, you know, that is part of their superstition that you know they'll come and get you. So it was kind of an unusual experience for. But the, the important thing was that she's in the, um, uh, in the uh, uh, office one day, and suddenly there's this odor, like peach. Hmm. 
And some of the, the, the students came running in and said, oh, sister, come quick, come quick. Well, they had opened up a coffin, you know, it was 100 to 150 years old. And this incredibly sweet odor, she said, the only thing I could liken it to is sticking your face into a peach. <laughs> it smelled good. It, you could taste it. It was just wonderful. And she said that was the odor of sanctity, and I read about it, of course. Wow. And it, it dissipated after a while. And I, it was astonishing because, I mean, you know, she wasn't in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> but this this incredible odor came out of her girlfriend. Um, and so the frustrating thing is that I was only able to narrow down that particular burial to one of three sisters who died at the same time. So I couldn't assign which one of the three it was. And I said, well, that tells us a couple of things, sister. One is the old phrase you sometimes read in books, anonymous lives of sanctity lived in the cloister. Well, there's one right there. And two, um, that obviously was not a saint for the whole for the whole church, but it certainly was a proof to you. And to the uh, and to the kids who were working for you, and uh, she allowed it so that was so, and it completely, you know, had really gotten her uh, her thinking stimulated in that area. And I said, and of course, the other thing is that it tells us that sanctity is possible even among nuns. <laughs> yeah, see, nuns can become saints too, despite what you've heard. <laughs> uh, and, but above all, to have this from the most American of convents, the Georgetown Visitation Convent, was to me a wonderful thing. Um, and I, I it, it was a good trip, gave me a lot of hope for the future. Um, but that was a particularly blessed thing because it's not the kind of thing that you would ever have heard about. But I would have ever heard about. No, you wouldn't, and, and unless somebody was knew the knew the story, and I don't know, wrote a column about it or something. Yeah, well, this uh, this thing, the, the look up the odor of sanctity. It's it's one of the uh, physical phenomena of mysticism, and so this anonymous nun living 100, 150 years ago, whatever it was, um, we don't know her. We'll never know her this side of the grave. But we know she was a saint. We know that she was a saint. That's uh, that, that's amazing, Charles. Uh, that's all the time that we have for today. Uh, and and by the way, I'll just tell you because I uh, I wrote a little bio yesterday of Saint Casimir, and yes. patron saint of Lithuania and and Poland. You know when. when People kept going to his uh, to his coffin, and they put uh, uh, they put him in a silk because he was royal. So they put him in a silver sarcophagus. They kept going there, kept getting healed, and reporting all these miracles. So the papal nuncio, Ferrier, I think it was his name, is sent by Pope Leo X. Hey, go investigate this, uh, this canonization. So they go and they uh, they crack open this coffin, and that's what they described. That smell that you were talking about. That yeah, the sweet odor of fruits filled the entire room when and he was laying there incorrupt, and uh, that's began began his canonization. Um, this is a pretty frequent occurrence during canonizations, actually. When those when yeah. those when those coffins are opened, they are opened 
You know, the odor of sanctity. You know, you're, you're not. There's not a bunch of worms and beetles in there that have, that have destroyed the flesh, and that's the whole point. Uh, there are there are sometimes. I mean, one of the things. <laughs> about the well, none of this stuff is. Let's put it this way. One of the one of the things that they that they do when they begin the investigations, they look at the state of the body. Is yes, it is a consideration, but some things are corrupt, some are not. Some have the odor of sanctity, some don't. Uh, it's the totality they looked at, and of course, particularly the miracles. You know, you can have everything else, but if you don't have any miracles, you ain't getting in. <laughs> you got no miracles, you got nothing. <laughs> no, I mean that's why when they canonized JFK, for instance, uh, <laughs> what? Huh? What? I must have missed that one. <laughs> No, it was an odor of, an odor of whiskey. But, uh, <laughs> like Jameson. No, that, no, they imported scotch, not whiskey. <laughs> uh, I, I, no, honestly, it, it, uh, it's important to bear in mind, though, that it does happen. And that um, the odor of sanctity is no, no uh, mere turn of phrase. No, it's not. Um, folks, get a copy of Charles's book, A Catholic Quest for the Holy Grail. Charles also writes at my friend uh, Jordan Bloom. You need to school. You and I need to We need to catechize that boy. Uh, <laughs> but he writes for, for Jordan at thejacobite.com uh, and also for brother at the catholicism.org and uh, several other magazines and online websites of import. He is a world-class gentleman and scholar and a true friend of the Crusade Channel and all that we do here as we are a true friend of all that he does. Mr. Charles Coulomb, always a pleasure. You brighten my day. Your work is, uh, your work uh, found a new fan in, in me and uh, gave me a, a, a zealous charge, as Brother brother Francis like to say. So uh, thank you for that, brother. And uh, it's great to talk to you. I'll let you go sleep off the Vanity Fair after party. Oh, boy. Now I'll I'll crawl back into bed. (laughs) Charles, thank you. God bless you, brother. You too. Bye-bye. All right. He's the one and only Charles Coulomb.